Um, ready. Ready. Okay. Welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. And if you're listening to that and you're like, what? That is not a real thing. It's real. It is, in fact. It's real. It's very real. And you were like, but I clicked on Eyes on Conservation. Yes. Yes, you did. And no, you didn't. Equally. It is it is competing realities, and they are fighting for control of your mind. <laughs> None of that is true, but we are, in fact, the Earth to Humans podcast, the brand new rebranded what was Eyes on Conservation. That's too many words. Just remember, Earth to Humans. Earth to Humans. And I am joined with that lovely voice you hear there with me, Serena Simon. Hey. Hi, Greg. And hello. And if you have not listened to the last episode about why we decided to do a rebrand, you would, I 100% recommend that you go and listen to it. But you would also hear that Serena Simons, the 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 the, the mastermind, the, <laughs> from the keyboard herself, right there, from from her own keyboard, oh. Earth to Humans was born. Oh boy. Oh boy. How much pressure, right? Greg, you know what? We already did this where we blame the entirety of the potential failure of the rebranding and the name change on me. So I think we can skip this part. Okay. Well I and I also gave away your home address yeah. in, in the last one. It was so, it was yeah. absolutely my home address. Yeah. It was Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very real. <laughs> Don't go do that. That's that's horrible. That'll okay. that'll probably take you to the middle of the lake. Probably. Yeah, the, ad- yeah. the address that Greg gave. If somebody's going to track you down about a name change, though, that's probably where they belong. <laughs> uh, I am thrilled about the interview that you did for today. I think that this is such an important topic, and I think that there's a really cool story behind this individual and the work that she's done um, that just deserves like all the attention in the world. Who is Jessica Graham, and what do you want audience the audience to be listening for as we get into this interview? Yeah, I mean, Je- Jessica is, I mean, she's the kind of person that you want on your team, right? Like, she, she has so much experience in so many different facets of conservation. Um, she worked for the State Department. She worked for Interpol. She now runs her own agency right now. And she has done so much work with governments and and activists and states and lawyers. And she just has a wealth of knowledge um, to combat the issues that she's passionate about. Um, and so she has dedicated a good amount of her career um, studying and trying to understand and combat wildlife trafficking, global wildlife trafficking. Um, and... The, the biggest takeaway that I got from Jessica is that she is incredibly positive. She, given all of the, the, the horror that she has probably seen and, you know, had to deal with and um, just, just it, it, it's, not, it's not an easy job. It's not a glamorous job. It's not a fun job, right? We're dealing with pretty awful um, people and, and pretty awful circumstances for these, um, these species. Um, but she remains positive and hopeful and keeps pushing forward. And I just really admire that about her so much. 
I couldn't reiterate that any more than than is than it already is true. Um, this interview is really something else. Jessica Graham is just a, an asset to Earth, which maybe makes her a perfect person <laughs> to interview for the inaugural Earth to Humans episode. Absolutely. Um, and and yeah, her her uh, the, the way she works within the system, her ability to to organize and fundraise and streamline, and yet still stay optimistic about one of the most corrupt black market industries on planet Earth yeah. is utterly fascinating. The, and, and, and before we get into it, um, this is a cut version of this. There is an extended version that's available on Patreon, and I highly, highly recommend that you go on there, become a donor to our Patreon page for as little as a buck a show, and have access to full interviews like this one and more. It's worth it, worth it, worth it, and you're always giving to a really important cause. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. Awesome. Thanks again for having me as well. I'm looking forward to, to participating in today's discussion. Um, I, I worked at State Department and I originally started working with the climate change team in the Conservation Bureau and got to see some really amazing work by uh, our foreign policy efforts. Then I moved to the Law Enforcement Bureau at State Department, which has a much larger budget, um, a lot of programs globally in over 80 countries now a dime on uh, on anything green and so I had started to develop their green agenda with you know very little funding and 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 you know limited leadership support so then it turned into um, Secretary Clinton's one of her legacy issues before leaving the State Department uh, was the wildlife trafficking issue and she really took this from a security standpoint which was the game changer and that's what garnered the interest I think globally among leaders and policymakers and businesses as well um, when when discussing that that kind of need for decades long discussion on conservation, but really changing it to a security paradigm. And so from there, um, we got a bigger budget, uh, top down support, which which then uh, my ambassador at the time was was very supportive of my efforts. And I led the environmental crime team for the Bureau and, and developed what was a penniless program into a $40 million program a year. So I was running projects all around the globe and got to, to meet some amazing, passionate uh, environmental advocates and conservationists and law enforcement personnel who really want to be on the right side of history and making uh, an impact on our future for generations to come. And so I feel very lucky and blessed. I then moved from State Department to Interpol, uh, where I was uh, advising from a strategic policy side. Um, the head of the environmental security program. And then I launched JG Global Advisory, which I get to work with various institutions, organizations globally, and work mostly with executives on advising them from a strategic standpoint. So working with organizations who are doing just amazing, uh, they're producing amazing products of uh, whether it's technology, AI technology, or uh, whistleblower uh, platforms or uh, just some really amazing work that that they're doing that I, I kind of help foster facilitate further to, to take it to the next level mm -hmm. well let's let's take kind of a step back um, if you could kind of and I know this is a huge question but kind of what does the world of organized wildlife trafficking look like today in the US and the world if you can 
kind of summarize? Is it better than it's been in years past? Is it worse? Kind of what does that look like today? Yeah, I think that we are, well, we, I mean, we're more ever connected than, than we have ever seen. And, and that's all in very much in our face because of the COVID pandemic, right? But I think transnational organized crime, wildlife trafficking is one of the top five most lucrative uh, organized crimes. It's, it's in the range of, you know, 20 billion. And that's just wildlife. That doesn't include timber or fisheries, uh, uh, you know, illicit trafficking of timber or IUU fishing, which, you know, that's, that's in hundreds of, of billions a year, if you were to include all of those environmental uh, issues. But just wildlife trafficking alone is about up to 20 billion uh, in estimates. Estimates are not consistent, but we know that it's lucrative. And it's lucrative because it, and criminals are engaged in this activity, because it's a low risk of detection and a high reward potential. So rhino horn can go for more than gold or cocaine on the black market. The, the increase in scale and scope of, of wildlife trafficking is still very much present today. Organized crime works as a, as a legitimate business in many ways, like, like a, a legitimate entrepreneur would want to diversify their stock portfolio. And the same goes for a criminal entrepreneur. They want to make money at the end of the day. And so the amount, this amount of money has to be flowing through financial institutions. And the U.S. has a role to play in this. The U.S. is one of the largest demand markets behind you know, China or the EU, if we were to consider that as one market. And our products are largely very different than what the Chinese are importing um, or trading in uh, illegally. But it's, it's actually more so uh, reptiles and exotic birds from Latin America coming in through our ports. So the U.S. has a major role transnational organized crime is still engaging in this because oftentimes enforcement have few resources to tackle this issue or this isn't a high enough on the pecking order of importance when you're talking about drugs and counterterrorism efforts. So so what, what I have worked on over the years is to really look at the issue across from a holistic approach but across the criminal threat convergence. So we do see a lot of drug trafficking uh, or small arms trafficking crossing over with wildlife trafficking as far as the trade that's going through or the mechanisms in place in, in systems that allow for chaos or crime to happen. So corruption, money laundering, uh, bribes, uh, customs, you know, turning their, their head away from what's going on. And so Getting, getting paid or falsification of permits um, to st state that it's a different trade species and it's not you know, an endangered tree, tree species or plant species or it's, it's, not, it's this fish versus another fish, right? So, so there's, just, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a, there's a need for leadership, uh, there's a need for commitment and there's a need for action. We're seeing a lot of commitments uh, in advance of the Biodiversity Summit this week. Um, and that commitment is great, and, and the he many heads of state are, are engaging, but at the end of the day, commitment is only a pledge until you can put action behind it, funding and resources behind it to change the game. For law enforcement to be able to do their job, this should be important to governments, and in many governments state it is, because they do understand that it's, it's a, at the end of the day, they're losing revenue, they're losing all kinds of, you know, economically, they're losing out if they're not engaging in, in really in a, in a hard stance to, to targeting uh, these issues. 
Kenya, you know, Kenya has, Kenya's leadership has always been very vocal about supporting wildlife trafficking. Their elephant poaching figures um, have always been high in the last, you know, decade or so, uh, but they've done some things to try to reduce the poaching rates. And when you look at their uh, GDP, you know, Kenya's 13% of Kenya's GDP goes towards uh, ecotourism from ecotourism purposes. So they're really losing out on a situation like COVID. And they're also really losing out when you have poaching going on in their country within their national borders. So these are all really important issues, um, but they have to take a holistic approach to it and look at it cross-sectorally. Do you, do you think there's kind of a disconnect? So for example, what you just brought up with Kenya, 13% of their GDP is dedicated towards ecotourism. And so, so basically the need to maintain and conserve wildlife so that people can see it, right? Um, and so that there's still a draw for people. Do you think, because when you brought up that the U.S. is one of the largest demand markets, I that was kind of shocking to me um, because I think most people think of wildlife trafficking as not a U.S. issue. And I wonder if that disconnection happens because we don't dedicate so much of our, we don't have the same sort of outlook on wildlife, I think, as other countries do. Yeah, I mean, so so Kenya, I mean, their communities, there's a lot of human wildlife conflict as well, which is is, is one other reason why, why some of these species get uh, poached. Um, if m- massive elephants are, are tearing up year-long worth of crops for profit, um, you know, communities will, will but, but Kenya is pretty unique, and many of their communities know these elephants by name. They know around their age group. They know the families they belong to. And so we don't have that kind of close linkage to our environment, mm-hmm. our, our, our local environment. You know, I think our, our food, where we're getting it from, we're, we're so it's so distant to, uh, you know, an American, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the U S market is, is large. And if, if you start to look at the, you know, department of justice has done an amazing job in U S fish and wildlife service, which is the lead for the U S government on tracking these things in uh, domestically, you know, they're doing a really great job and there's been some really large cases, but uh, it's very much here at home. And, and I think the media tends to love and public that you, you you know you heard the outcry when Cecil the lion was was shot and the, and the dentist uh, you know who did it and, and all the public outrage for that right the public really can get around an elephant or a rhino uh, being murdered or a uh, lion getting poached hunted I should say not poached but hunted and and yeah and and you like the media can get around that but um, the you know, when we start talking about reptiles and exotic birds for the pet trade or the accessories trade that the U.S. is decimating these um, species throughout Latin America, for some reason, it doesn't strike the same chord of warm and fuzzy and and the outrage um, of that. Yeah, it's, (laughs) yeah, I, I can imagine that's a really frustrating thing to deal with when you're trying to raise the alarm about what's going on. So with the U.S. market, and you're talking about birds and reptiles, what are what are the systems in play there? Yeah, so I think uh, the exotic bird pet trades are coming in and, and um, with their beaks tied on tied around people's bodies and they're walking through airports or they're coming through luggage and they're being hid, uh, hidden in cargo. Um, that's 
that's same with reptiles. They're usually coming in live. Uh, some of the reptiles I'd say maybe not so much, but but that, I mean, that's mostly a, a live animal trafficking, if you will. And, and it's through uh, luggage and people going through air cargo, right? I think, yeah. So, I mean, that's what it, that's what it looks like. And um, then it's sold. I mean, there's many, there's throughout the supply chain from, from the source to the transit to the destination, there's, there's many methods and ways and there's many low level and then middle level men, there's, you know, fewer kingpins. And that's who, you know, State Department has a rewards program where they actually put out uh, their first ever transnational organized crime rewards program was for a uh, major trafficker, wildlife trafficker in Asia, um, the Saisavan Network. And so, you know, Interpol is also interested in the kingpins, but there's not a lot of data out there, I think. I, I think that the governments know some of the major uh, kingpins, like the Ivory Queen, which was a Chinese national who was trafficking wildlife parts in, uh, based in Tanzania from, you know, East Africa onward through the Middle East and into, into East and, and Southeast Asia. And so I think you have some of these quintessential kingpins, uh, whether they're women or men, but you don't have enough details or data, I think. And so what happens is at the local state level, they're chasing the poachers who are a dime a dozen. You arrest one, they'll get replaced by five more in the next day. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's the low level poaching that gets paid, you know, very nominally. Then it goes through a, a shipping, uh, through transit, um, that's where a falsification of CITES permits uh, tends to be uh, if they're larger amounts of, of, of shipping cargoes and things like that, or bribes are paid off to customs officials. And um, we know where the major transits, we know where the major hotspots are for various wildlife species, whether it's rhino horn, pangolin scales, for example, pangolins are one of the most trafficked species in the world. And there, most people don't even know what a pangolin is in the mm -hmm. U.S., right? It's a, it looks like a scaly anteater. Um, but conservation organizations, I think, have done a better job at trying to expand our uh, awareness of, of, of what these kind of distant species that are not native to the U.S., but are mm -hmm. majorly trafficked or, or highly endangered. Yeah, and our role, highlighting our role as a country in that problem. Yeah, well, I'm so, and and also the the worst thing about that is, in a lot of those Latin American countries, there's incredible endemism. Like they're taking species out of incredibly biodiverse areas where you you know you take a few frogs here and a couple of snakes here, you know, and it just it really impacts that ecosystem. Um, WWF uh, just released a week ago their Living Planet Report 2020, which re revealed a 68% drop in wildlife populations where it was tracked over the last 46 years from 1970 to 2016. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's catastrophic, right? I mean, that's massive environmental destruction. And so we really have to, and this is only getting perpetuated by situations like COVID-19, um, where, you know, law enforcement, if they're getting paid regularly in many of the, many countries around the globe, they're certainly not getting paid uh, now and parks are not being patrolled or, you know, so this, this just creates further gaps and opportunities for criminal activity. 
And that kind of leads me to my next question about the current administration. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of environmental rollbacks in this administration. Uh, We've withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement. We've loosened EPA regulations. We've, you know, proposed changes to the Endangered Species Act. Um, And I know that this administration has um, done some work with um, kind of following through with wildlife trafficking regulations and laws and proposals that the Obama administration um, either formed or was perpetuating. But how do you see some of the some of these um, these issues within our own country and how how we can even hope to affect change globally if we can't even work on um, our own protection here in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, so I think I think there's there is a lot of challenge, but I really try to to take an optimistic and hopeful perspective on this. Um, I think there have been tremendous rollbacks in various environmental regulations. To your point, um, but many of my colleagues who are who are are not political or civilians have have are still in this administration are still working hard around the clock to try to really keep the their their finger on the pulse on these important issues and i think the beauty of the issue of wildlife trafficking if there could be a, a positive aspect to this is that it's a highly bipartisan issue on the hill so mm-hmm. actually the budget has only maintained or increased slightly in the last four years under this administration and so congression i mean the beauty of having you know three branches of government to hold accountability to one another and have checks and balances. You do have a bipartisan Congress who likes this issue and continues to keep this on the radar screen and support the issue with um, budget uh, earmarks, not allocations, but earmarks um, to State Department and USAID to implement these projects. So they continue to, to work on these issues around the globe. Um, and unfortunately, the U.S. is not part of the, the Convention on Biodiversity. They haven't been for, for a while, and they're, they're not having any representation at the Biodiversity Summit. I think what we'll see in the absence of U.S. federal leadership is that leadership will maintain, but it'll just look and feel very differently. You know, China had just recently committed to a carbon commitment by pledging to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, right, in advance of this um, summit. So I think, I think that there will, there's so much work to be done and everybody has a role, but where somebody decides to back out of it, there will certainly be someone else filling that vacuum. Mm-hmm. And we just hope that it's, it's someone who can do a good job and who, who has the same end goal in mind, which is to reverse these poaching rates, to enhance you know, look into the science and really alleviate the climate change problem we have. Uh, absolutely. Um, so speaking on that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an issue that seems to have bipartisan support. It's something that I think people, most people can agree is something that we want to end and make better. But, you, you know, if that's the case, then why, why is, Wildlife trafficking still so low on the totem pole, as you said. Why is the budget for drug trafficking fifty billion dollars a year, but the budget for this is about forty million a year? How, and how do we change that? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it, it it is up to leadership and policymakers to 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 see this not as an environmental or a conservation issue, but to see this as a criminal issue. And until 
they can take this seriously enough to make this uh, in, in, in a target and address this as a criminal problem, uh, you will continue to see the path that we've been on. As I mentioned, you know, uh, both Secretary, former Secretary Kerry and former Secretary Clinton both were very passionate about this issue and, and Obama was as well. And they really looked at this from a criminal issue and that's why they developed the President's Task Force to Combat Wildlife Trafficking, which was made, it still exists today. It's 17 government agencies all around the table. You have Treasury, you have DHS, you have ICE and CBP, you've got FBI, you've got a lot of agencies that never were as engaged much more engaged today, um, but they're staffing their teams, their environmental teams in these law enforcement agencies with, you know, one or two people, right? Mm -hmm. And also Fish and Wildlife Service is under-resourced and, and, and doesn't have mm -hmm. the, you know, they started putting attaches, if you will, out uh, in, in several countries around the globe. And I think they maybe have a dozen now, if that, and um, placed around the globe. And, you know, if you look at something like the FBI, League Gats, or the, you know, ICE attaches that are out there, they've got scores, you know, more than that, not scores, but, you know, they've got a lot more than six to 12 uh, people on the globe. So I think, yeah, it really, be, really becomes a priority for leadership to put the resources behind creating a team that can really tackle this as a crime issue. Yeah. And it's a, it's a dangerous job to to put yourself I mean I can imagine it, it's not easy to find staff to do this kind of job I mean is it a matter of if we just put you know say we put billions of dollars into this and that was the budget you know is it a matter of we just need more money and then we can you know make all these problems go away but then I think about the you know drug trafficking and we put so much money towards drug trafficking and human trafficking um, but those issues are still continuing and it's like no amount of money or people we put towards these issues is 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 fixing the issues so how do you see a solution to ending wildlife trafficking yeah, I mean, I think with the drug, there is lessons to be learned with the drug trade, right? Um, the law enforcement bureau is the counter, was the, you know, and still is the counter narcotics bureau for the State Department. So, you know, during Plan Columbia and, and throughout the 80s, you know, we were eradicating uh, poppy fields and we were eradicating a lot of, of, of these crops that, that could be turned into drugs, uh, we, we were eradicating. And that was our a strategy then. Then we, we turned it from eradicating crops to, to trying to give them real alternatives to, to growing cotton or corn or in education programs mm -hmm. and um, those types of opportunities. So we, over the last 50 years in the drug trade, we've got a lot of lessons that we, we should be applying in other crime areas and not repeating the mistakes we did in, in the drug war and, the, and, the, and, and, and whatnot. Um, you know, the legalization of marijuana, for example, like, I don't think anyone who was working on counter narcotics would have seen uh, the day that U.S. states would start to legalize marijuana, you know, a few, a few decades ago. So, we, we've got to take the right lessons and apply them appropriately. I think that's uh, an issue um, when we talk about the drugs. As far as the finances, you know, when you're saying $20 billion for all that trafficking, that's, that's got to be moving through financial institutions. It's not just cash on hand at the local level, um, local currency, but it's, it's probably in U.S. dollars. It's probably going through large financial transactions um, 
from one financial institution to from one side of the world to another and they're buying up houses and cars and shedding some of it behind you know trying to clean the money and launder it uh through other ways and so we have very limited information but we do need to have we do need to get more information on that um um, so, you know, European governments, the UK, the US are all doing a lot of good work in this vein um, to raise the awareness. But again, now it's really putting action. When Jessica came into her position at the State Department, her budget was zero dollars and zero cents. Mm-hmm. And she stretched that and pushed that and made it into a $40 million budget. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I'm not great at math, but I don't, that's like a bazillion percent higher. Yeah. I mean, $40 million. Obviously, it's a big deal and it's a big issue that you need that much money for. So imagining like the absence of that money and the absence of that, that staff and that attention to this issue is just mind boggling to me. And it's, um, it's, it's, <laughs> I've never raised $40 million for a project ever, right? Like, that's just not something that most people will ever accomplish in their lifetime. And and Jessica has done that and more. Like, she recognizes that $40 million to combat wildlife trafficking is a great start, right? But the what we spend currently to fight drug trafficking is about $50 billion a year. So uh, 50 billion with 50 a B billion with a B 50 billion wow. with a B dollars to fight drug trafficking in the U S. So, um, we have a ways to go, but it is an absolute amazing start. I think it's so cool that she has that perspective on it. Like, yes, we did this great way to scratch yes. the surface. So much more to be yes. done. Um, and I think she's going to tell us, she's going to tell us a lot more about that in the second half yeah. of this. You know, when we have a species and it, it's on the market and it goes extinct, will it just be a matter of then whatever remains of that species is going to become more lucrative? You know, if, if elephants go extinct, for example, and ivory becomes more lucrative, or will people just move on to another animal? Yeah, I think criminals are, you know, there's a lot of poaching that goes on that's local with local communities due to human wildlife trade, due to the bushmeat trade, et cetera, et cetera. But the bulk and the decimation at the the scale and scope we're seeing of rhinos or elephants or whatnot, pangolins, it, it is because of the demand. And so um, some uh, criminals are hoping that these animals do go extinct so that they become even more expensive in the black market um, because it becomes more of a precious good, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, my hope is that we can turn that equation upside down and so that that's never the case, um, that criminals don't want, that we're that this is no longer a lucrative opportunity for criminals, that penalties are harsh enough that it's a deterrent for them to stay away. But we also cannot arrest our way through this problem. Mm-hmm. To your point, it is a very important area of demand reduction. You know, I didn't talk enough about, I think, the international cooperation aspect we talked about and the law enforcement aspect, but the demand reduction is 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 a necessity. And you saw during the pandemic, whether, you know, this stemmed from a bat or a pangolin, 
to human uh, contact, the wildlife markets or the, or the wet markets are two different things. And if you've ever had the uh, opportunity to see in, in, in Asia, they're, they're overwhelmingly very sad. And yeah, I have seen, I have seen, unfortunately in Beijing and they're unsanitary, they're unhygienic, they're not safe. And, and so if you see these things that, you know, demand has to be stemmed. And so the Chinese government, the Vietnamese government came out shortly thereafter and banned wildlife markets, but okay. A ban stating a ban is great step forward but take it to the next level, which means enforcement. And so these things, I'm sure if you go throughout China or Vietnam today, you will find them, uh, these wet markets or, or wildlife markets. And so, so many conservation engineers have taken that opportunity to call for a total ban across the globe of, of, these, of the closure of these markets, because I think there are 1.6 million global diseases out there, half of which could do the same destruction as mm -hmm. COVID. I think when COVID is over, they think something like $10 trillion will be the, the havoc that's wreaked on our economy, lives lost and everything else. And so this is a good opportunity to really, to really, uh, to, to, to close these down for the global uh, health and health security issue. But do that you, it raises. But do you think that that's actually realistic? I mean, China has made repeated efforts to increase consequences for selling and consuming endangered species, um, you know, with fines and longer prison sentences and things like that. And and that was with SARS in 2003. And here we are in 2020 dealing with COVID-19 for this, you know, not the same, but a similar zoonotic disease. So you you mentioned that a lot of these entanglements and the the hierarchy and the 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 way that these systems function is sometimes you know government officials being involved or turning a blind eye or getting paid or being bribed so i mean how realistic is it that we keep putting bans on and we keep increasing consequences for these issues is is wildlife trafficking still going to exist yeah, I mean, I think in the short and medium term, it will absolutely exist. But I think if if not put a ban, then what? You know, I mean, that's the first step forward is putting a ban. The next step is enforcing it. I mean, when, when the Chinese government announced during when they crushed and destroyed their ivory stockpiles, they, they announced shortly after the U.S. government, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did about, I think, three tons in 2013 or so, did a, an ivory uh, crush, and then the Chinese shortly thereafter did 3.1 tons of ivory. And then they, uh, since then, the U.S. and Chinese government have crushed several more and destroyed several more stockpiles of their ivory. But then many of, they had over 100 state-owned ivory carving workshops. They closed most of those down. Mm -hmm. So you have to take, I mean, they have, credit needs to be given where it's deserved. And I think there they, they are taking the right steps forward. They need to enforce it. Um, I think the, the, the type of government system with both China and Vietnam is when the government states something, changes do, do occur. How they occur, their timeline of occurring, that can all be vague at times. But, you know, the ban is needed. It's, it's necessary. And, and, and compliance and compliance by the public and enforcement by law enforcement is is going to be critical. Um, but wildlife trafficking, until it's no longer profitable, if we could if we could put a zero dollar sign on a rhino horn, then it, and it it was it was seen by criminals as as that they wouldn't be poaching them at the levels, and and you wouldn't have to have like serious security 
uh, apparatuses around some of these private reserves throughout mm -hmm. South Africa, if we could just turn the equation around so that this is no longer profitable, criminals would not delve into this if it didn't give them profit. Mm -hmm. So we have to we have to make it unprofitable, and we we have to have people educated with more awareness to not eat. Um, you know, for example, when the Chinese government banned shark fin soup. At, at government banquets and and, ba and and announced this, you started to see a drop. And and so there can be positive changes, but again, it's 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 raising awareness. A lot of, uh, they did a survey many years back with the Chinese citizens and said, you know, why are you carving uh, ivory tusks? And uh, they, or buying them perhaps. And, and they found that many, Chinese citizens thought that it was like a baby tooth on an, and that, that you didn't have to deface an elephant to pull its tusk out and that it would just grow back. And so a lot of it can be done with raising awareness and demand reduction as part of the, of part of that equation. Mm -hmm. And I, and I also see a connection here with um, basically the current pandemic and everything that we've talked about and and also sort of racism and xenophobia. You know, I, I have seen a lot of parallels with COVID-19 and the reactions of people being racist, you know, saying that this is, you know, we had our own president go on the debate yesterday and call it the China plague. So like m making, making these issues partisan and political and racist, I feel is not helping the issue at all, especially thinking about wildlife trafficking as, like I said earlier, as like another country's issues. Like it's not a U.S. issue. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's an everyone's issue. I think if it didn't happen in Wuhan uh, last fall, uh, it would have inevitably happened somewhere else. Uh, you know, many of these zoonotic diseases have been found not just in China. Um, and so closing down the wildlife markets not politicizing this because um, while this is an opportunity, you know, in the face of chaos, there's always an opportunity for innovation and for learning and growing. And I think we should be taking the higher road at the political level of this is an issue we all need to deal with. Uh, we need to work together on this. We need to cooperate. Um, instead, we're closing our doors. We're or pointing fingers and blaming others and not taking any responsibility. And that just doesn't help create a solution in any world uh, that one may live in. Um, and so at the end of the day, it really is about, we have this problem where it's not going away. Let's fix it. Let's, let's, let's focus on the solution and how we're going to get it fixed instead of trying to blame others for whatever our wrongdoing was in this. Absolutely. And kind of kind of to wrap up a little bit, do you sort of see wildlife trafficking and, you know, this most recent pandemic that we've had with COVID-19 as a way in to kind of talk about health security and national security and the risks of future pandemics and also, you know, working to stop wildlife crime? Do you, I mean, do you see that that's a way that we might be able to increase the budget for this or a way that we can get leaders on board with this if, if we kind of frame wildlife trafficking as a national security issue? Absolutely. The health security uh, paradigm has been lifted to another level in the, the wildlife trafficking discussion that I've never seen it before. 
And I think that it will maintain, I think the health security aspect will absolutely maintain its, its front and center for at least the short term. And it was one, though, that the U.S. government did, uh, you know, the, the U.S. government took on the wildlife trapping issue as a national security, a conservation issue, an economic issue, and a health issue in the past, but, but not to the degree of the health security discussion that we're seeing today. And so I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. And I think that everyone is now painfully aware at the importance of having WHO and having health experts be a part of the dialogue and any holistic approach because of the need for, um, or because the potential impact it has on the economic uh, front. Mm-hmm. Jessica, what's your personal investment in what you do? Like, why do you do what you do? Why are you passionate about wildlife trafficking and, and all the work that you've done? Why are you passionate about it? I do what I do today. Uh, you know, if you've ever, you know, gone on a safari, as, as, as I mentioned, it's the most magical um, place to be, in my opinion, because you're really seeing these wild, majestic creatures in their natural habitat, and, and that's their home. And, and so, you know, the people I work with uh, each day is what keeps me driving to, to do more on the issue and continue to raise uh, my voice to hopefully inspire unintentionally or intentionally others to to care about this issue, to want to be better, to want to do more, and and to think about their role in this world in a selfless way enough that that we we want to do better. Uh, whether it's main, making sure that you know gorilla mountain gorillas get to stay in their natural habitat and protected areas they're currently in in central africa or elephants being able to roam around the savanna throughout the maasai mara in kenya or having orangutans in indonesia not be encroached upon due to palm oil industry i mean there's there's so many issues there's no shortage of a need for everyone to have a piece and a role to play in it Mm -hmm. a kind of all hands on deck approach and that we're all we're all part of this world. Any other um, you know personal projects or recent projects that you're working on that you want to just talk about briefly? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I just did a a paper research interviews in a paper. It was looking at all female uh, rangers and anti poaching units in Africa. There are three of them, and they have not only reduced poaching, increased wildlife activity. Um, but they're extremely resilient. They're extremely brave. They're doing an unglamorous job. And, um, and there's been zero incidents of corruption found within and among the units. I, I did kind of a comparison review of the three uh, units. There's the Akashinga in Zimbabwe, led by International Anti-Poaching Foundation. There's the Black Mambas, led by Transfrontier Africa in South Africa. And there's Team Lioness, which were supported by the International Fund on Animal Welfare in Kenya. And all of them are, are uh, really inspiring in stories, each in, in, in their own right. And, uh, and I've really looked at the role uh, kind of through a corruption lens, how there's been no corruption and how could that potentially be scaled to other areas. But we found in the re- interviews and research that there was no blueprint or perfect template that could fit. They were all different models slightly, but they had very intensive recruitment selection training programs, low turnover, and um, are very kind of 
proud of their jobs and they're influencing and inspiring youth to become conservationists instead of what could be an option as they get, grow up to be a poacher. Um, so really incredible work that they're doing uh, and excited that I was able to be such a small part of, of reviewing for, for the project that I was on to review them. So really exciting work. And again, it just speaks to how uh, important the work they're doing is and how inspiring it is for me to want to do my job each day is, is to see to see what they're doing on the ground and they're putting their lives on the line you know they're they're out for weeks at a time on patrols away from their home many are, of which are family are breadwinners to their family and they're leaders in their communities so it's uh it's been it's been an exciting project recently so basically what you're saying is women are going to save the world <laughs> Always. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thank you so much, Jessica. It's been a pleasure and looking forward to hearing more about all the amazing things you continue to do every day. It, it's really strange to hear this interview, which is just littered with bad news, uh, like 68% drop in wildlife population over 40 years or the 10 trillion dollars in economic damage that's that's supposed to, uh that's suspectedly the outcome of covid mm-hmm. um and yet she finds a way to sort of end on a positive note right like so for so much bad news that's pretty incredible that that is her takeaway from it. Do you think that that's some degree of wishful thinking or what was your perspective when you visited with her? No, I definitely, and I definitely pushed her on that. And, um, there was a conversation we had about China's bans on, um, certain species and their crackdown on wet markets and wildlife markets and, um, the increased penalties that they have implemented for people violating, um, you know, the, these, these new laws. Um, but her answer was just like, well, if not, if not a ban, then what? I mean, it's a start, right? Like it's, it's, it's something. So rather than griping about, well, is this the right way or is this the best way? Um, it's better to start with something, right? And then we can progress and move forward from there. And, and, and her answer was, um, was great to hear because it's, it's, um, it's something that I struggle with. Right. And we just had to talk about this, Greg. Um, everything seems so hopeless and, um, it it just, it, it can really get to you when you work in this field for an extended period of time. Right. And just seeing the degradation and destruction and just that's constant. Right. But we do have to remember why we do what we do. And Jessica, um, remembers that she is pushing forward. She is taking names and she is just going to keep going no matter what. So I, I really, really admired that about her and something that, you know, I really want to try and implement more in my life and stay positive mm-hmm. and stay the course. Um, and she also was really good about saying like, we need more help. Like we need more leaders in this, in this fight. Right. We need more, um, more staff. It's, it's, there's just so many ways that we can um, we can work to to mitigate this issue, and um, you know, so I, I thought that was a really great conversation, and um, Jessica is just truly amazing. Yeah, well, I, I think we could all take a, a page out of that book uh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, realize the damage that's being that's being caused. Realize the the 
irreversible consequences that have already taken place and will uh, will to come. Mm-hmm. But to not give up hope in that light. Yeah, interconnected, and we better figure it out. Yeah. Serena Simons, thank you so much for this. It has been an absolute pleasure visiting with you today. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of our newly renamed podcast, Earth to Humans. You can check out the show notes for this episode if you'd like to find out more information about Jessica and her work, as well as photos of some of her recent projects. And if you liked what you heard and maybe learned something new, please consider supporting the show by visiting patreon.com slash wildlandscollective, where you'll get exclusive access to an extended cut of this episode. Your support helps us continue to bring you exciting, informative content each and every episode. So thank you. We really appreciate it. This episode of the podcast was produced and hosted by me, Serena Simons, and co-produced by Gregory Haddock. Thank you to Blue Dot Sessions for today's music.